Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I think as science is progressing, we're realizing our understanding is actually very limited on what is nutritionally relevant. There's a study that shows that, you know, for oranges, the vitamin C content that, for example, would have um, our grandparents could have got from one orange, we would now need to eat eight oranges. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. Abby Rose is a physicist and further studied nuclear and particle physics for her masters and has now become a leading voice in a new dawn in farming. A farmer and soil health advocate, Abby was named one of 50 new radicals by The Guardian and Nesta in 2018 for her work developing simple apps that help build ecology, profitability and beauty on farms around the world. Five years ago, she founded the award-winning British podcast, Farmerama Radio, one of my favorites, as a way of sharing farmers' stories and their experiences in creating a more ecological farming future. The monthly show has quickly become a leading voice in the global regenerative farming movement, something that we talk about a lot in today's podcast, and highlights the positive role farmers play in determining the future of the earth and its people. Abby splits her time between working on her family farm, Vida Cycle. A bottle of wine arrived to the kitchen studio before today's uh, uh, podcast. I didn't drink it during the podcast, but I'll be enjoying it later. And it's based in Chile, where she visits multiple uh, farms and multiple farms across continents, where she learns about the soil and understands what it's going to take to build a more ecological farming future. On today's podcast, we talk about what regenerative farming is and how that compares to sustainable and organic, why soil health on farms is so important and how that links to the health of plants and thus the health of humans, how we can eat more regeneratively and what that actually means, nutrient bioavailability in food and how we measure it, 
how we're going to feed the world and who actually produces the world's food. This is a conversation about real food versus commodities that are products of farms. Seed and grain heritage and sovereignty, a subject matter that I am educating myself on as we speak. Politics, Brexit, GMO, EU structures that have traditionally disabled progress and what the pros and cons are of that, as well as how you can get more involved in this farming movement and how you can eat and essentially shape the food landscape, which is something I think consumers have a lot of power in to move towards a more sustainable structure. This is a topic that I'm certainly learning a lot more on myself and I think Abby is a leading voice and someone who has really been pivotal in my education and will continue to be so quite frankly as well. I highly recommend you check out Farmerama Radio but this is a long podcast where we go through a lot of different topics so please feel free to check out the show notes. There's loads of links um, to some of the things that we discussed. I highly, highly recommend you check out her podcast as well. And uh, I hope you enjoy the show. It's uh, It's been a long time coming and I'm sure there are going to be a lot more podcast episodes on this subject if you want to. So if you, if you enjoy this, please give us a five-star review and put a comment uh, in the in the show notes as well uh, wherever you get your podcast uh, from and uh, we will make more shows on it abby i'm so grateful for you to coming on the podcast and i'm super excited about this i know we've just been chatting very briefly about the broad topics that i want to talk about and there's quite a few so there's probably going to be a part two but um Thank you so much. I'm super interested in, in these subjects. Um, I'm very immature in my learning about this. And I think, you know, for me, starting off with this whole concept of food and the medicinal qualities and the nutritional medicine values of, of what we put in our plate has kind of led me on this journey towards how food is grown, farming and farming culture, and then ultimately soil health and and how the impact that we have on soil has an impact on human health it will be wonderful for you to introduce yourself and and to how you got into this from an academic point of view and uh, and, and what you do now yeah i'm really excited to talk to you as well because i think the context of food as medicine is really at the core of this conversation ultimately and although my life's focused on farming um food as medicine, both for humans and the planet, and how we can build on that is really what it's all about. So yeah, thank you for being in conversation. And um, I can give you a bit of the background about me. I studied physics at university, so master's in particle physics, <laughs> which is kind of like the most abstract <laughs> type of you know thinking in some ways that, that you can do. and. It was after that that I went and spent some time on my my parents moved to to start farming in Chile whilst I was at university. Um, And I thought at the time, I thought that was kind of a weird thing to do. Um, (laughs) But I went and spent some time on the farm after doing my master's. And I really uh, for the first, I don't know, I really connected with land um, Mm. and soil at that point and started to uh, really get excited about the, um, I guess, the real world, you might say, (laughs) and very physical things. 
Um, and farming really is that. It's very physical and you're really interacting with the day-to-day um, aspects of our world all the time. Um, so that was kind of like my first touch of farming after doing physics. And I, I went on to do quite a few things in um, physics and art and where the two come together. Um, but I kept kind of being drawn back into farming, obviously, by visiting my parents once a year. Um, and at some point, I think I, um, I had this realization um, that one, farming is really difficult. <laughs> so do not be, do not be conned. It's not that easy. Um, yeah. It is this amazing web of interactions. You know, you, the climate's always changing. You never know what pest disease might be around the corner. Um, all your neighbor, you know, your neighbors may cut down some trees and then suddenly you've got flooding on your land. It's just so many different things going on at once and the markets are all changing. So it's just, it's an insane discipline in a way. <laughs> um, maybe like medicine and like there's so many different factors that could be at play, right? Um, and so it was really that realization in, in amongst that, that, wow, also farmers are the people who are making the decisions in their day-to-day lives that affect all of us. Like they are the people who are interacting with the natural world day-to-day. Um, and if they decide to, like, yeah, if they decide to cut down some trees because, you know, they need to sell that wood so they can feed their family, but that could actually end up causing flooding in the nearby town. Mm. Um, and obviously, I'm not, there's no blame there or anything. It's just recognizing how linked it all is. Um, and, you know, and how farmers decide to graze their animals, for example. There are certain types of grazing that allow the, um, allow, you know, carbon to be sequestered in the soil versus uh, other types of grazing that can be quite detrimental to the landscape. So, yeah, that really got me fired up. Um, <laughs> and uh, alongside that, um, so, you know, realizing farmers are the decision makers um, of our future, essentially, or one of the decision makers of our future. And then alongside that, my dad um, was asking some questions about how to manage the olive trees. So we had 8,000 olive trees and he just could not keep track of what was happening with all of them, as of course. <laughs> um, and it's only a small farm. We're, you know, we're farming on around uh, 15 hectares, so that's, it's not very big, really and he needed a way to keep track of all of that stuff. And I, because I had a background in physics, I can code. And so um, I uh, created some apps for him essentially um, and for our family's farm that would allow us to keep track of what was happening with the trees. Um, And that, what started as a side project kind of ended up being something much more um, where neighbors got involved and they started using it. And, um, and so now that's, I spend quite a bit of my time or most of my time really um, on our business, which is our farm is called Vita Cycle Farm. And then the apps are called Vita Cycle Apps. Um, and we make an app specifically for supporting farmers in their observations um, around trees and agroforestry, uh, one more focused on vineyards. Um, and then finally one, that's called Soil Mentor. And that's all about uh, empowering farmers to um, analyze their own soil, essentially. So start to be able to go out there, look at the soil, understand what's happening, um, 
you know, really understand the biological interactions that are going on and then uh, start to make some assessments, you know, going back to the same plot the next year, looking what's changed and, yeah, really understanding the trends, essentially, because, yeah, I can go into that more later, but at the core of some of the realizations we've had on our farm is that every farm is different and that really yeah. you need to understand what's happening on that on your land and in your, in those soils and with the, the water that's there you know understanding all these interactions I, I love i love how um you know your background in uh particle physics which is all about lateral thinking and thinking really out the box has led you to what some might regard as uh, something quite simplistic and something like quite back to basics but like you've said quite eloquently in one of your articles um, that I'll link to in the show notes, you know, farmers are the caretakers of the earth. And it's one of the most important jobs out there in the world. And like you said, you know, if farmers decide to do something very different. It will impact not only their local communities, but as a collective organization, it affects the entire world. Um, and, and this is why I think it's really important for people to recognize the magnitude of how we as consumers impact farming and how farmers themselves impact uh, the world as well. Um, I, I want to get into a, a bit about what regenerative farming is, because this is a term that I think by my own ignorant admission, I've probably only heard of in the last year and I haven't really delved much into Um I actually wrote a chapter in my first book called Sustainable, Local and Organic and what those mean and, and why we need to eat a little bit more slow. But regenerative farming is kind of like the next level up. It's far beyond, you know, just slapping an organic and sustainable label on a product and, and as a means to attract new consumers. It's it's a, a, almost like a way of life. So why don't we dive into regenerative farming and, and how it came to you as well, how you got involved? Yeah, totally. Um, so, well, regenerative farming, I think it's, it's not uh, nothing to be embarrassed about that you've only come to it in the last year, because I'd say it's, it's a relatively like recent uh, term and phenomenon. It is still kind of growing around the globe. It's growing in awareness and understanding. And part of that also is that it doesn't really have a definition. <laughs> um, so we can't, <laughs> that makes just, me feel better. <laughs> we can't just box that up there, but um, it's it's a mindset, it's an ethos, and it's, it's an approach um, that is very much focused around soil health um, and biodiversity. So it's when farmers are prioritizing building soil health on their farm and building biodiversity. Um, and by having that be kind of the driving uh, goal or aim, um, there's all sorts of other things that come along with that. Um, and yeah, so that, that's how I would explain it really quick, quickly. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, regenerative farming is, uh, one, one approach, but what it's started to kind of, uh, unravel into is like regenerative economics, regenerative living. It is one of these funny things that because your mindset changes around how you're farming, um, suddenly ripples out into all other areas of life, <laughs> um, which has been really interesting to watch. But I guess the other thing to say is like, um, in terms of, you know, what might a regenerative farmer be doing? 
that's different than um, a more chemically based farmer or conventional farmer. Um, I guess the the first thing would be like um, planting. Um, well, there's the the soil health principles are kind of at the core of what regenerative farming is. So one of those is increased diversity. Um, so there's things like um, there's evidence out there that shows that if you plant many different types of crops, right, they have many different types of roots and they'll go to different rooting depths. And therefore that's feeding all different types of microbes and bacteria in the soil. Um, so it, it's, yeah, you really, you need diversity um, in your cropping system in order to be able to access all the different things that are available to you in the soil. Um, so that's one of the things. The other things is like, the other thing is, um, an or another principle, sorry, is in introduce animals in the system. Um, it has generally in a, in a regenerative system, it, it makes sense to have the animals there um, and be grazing them in a specific way where you're moving them very regularly. Um, and it's something, or there's lots of science behind it, but the interaction between the animal and the eating of grass, for example, um, it's shown that when you have the animals eating grass to a certain point, it makes the grass grow back much faster. Um, and then that allows for the grass to, uh, it photosynthesizes more, and therefore it's like putting more nutrients into the soil or carbon into the soil really. Um, and then again, that's feeding all the soil life below it. Um, so those are some of the key things that happen um, I guess also it's about reducing your reliance on chemicals and artificials. For my own knowledge as well, and perhaps the listeners, why don't we take even a step back um, beyond that and actually talk about what we mean by the soil? Because I think most people, when they think of soil, they just think of dirt. Or from a farming point of view, they think of soil being, okay, it needs to have, if you think back from, you know, back to your GCSE or whatever your uh, formative year education was, you know, it's got to have nitrogen, it's got to have phosphorus, it's got to have potassium um, and some water as well. And that's how I honestly would think about soil if I hadn't come across regenerative farming, organic farming, and all these other sort of methods of um, crop uh, production. So why don't we talk a little about what, what we mean by soil and why it's a living, breathing thing? Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're so right. <laughs> I'm just so into the soil that I forget to explain it. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to also acknowledge that just three years ago, I didn't care about soil either. Okay, so I don't, I don't wow, think okay. it's like, I also had the relationship with it that it was kind of like dirt, mm. even in, you know, even though I'd been involved in farming. So wow. it is something that maybe it's four years ago, but anyway, it was recent. So it's something that um, it's very common and it has been how we've all been taught for a long time that soil is sort of just a um, inert material in a way. Um, and we need to be making sure there are these different nutrients that we apply to it and then this, the plants grow. So <laughs> um, what I now understand soil to be is this living mesh, essentially. Um, and it's made up of um, millions and billions of um, microbes, uh, you know, fungi, bacteria, different nematodes, 
um, and they're all kind of living and um, they're for example in just a handful of healthy soil there's more microbes than there are people on the planet oh wow so it's like really a mesh of livingness <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and then between all those different um microbes that are moving around all the time in the soil um you have like the yeah the fungal aspect of it which can actually extend miles so i call it often people refer to it as the internet of fungi so you can imagine like below our feet not only are there all these living things moving around but there's also these miles of um hyphae and fungi that are just um going between all the different living organisms um, so from trees, you know, trees two miles away have been shown to interact with each other through these networks um, and, for example, warn that a, uh, a new pest has come. So it helps the next tree to respond um, and start to build up its defenses earlier. Wow. Not only that, do they, they also they're sharing nutrients and they're sharing water. Um, so it really is an Internet. It's a communication system that's happening below our feet. And and we just hadn't cottoned onto it, I guess, um, or we hadn't understood it because it's very small and not that easy to understand. Um, so yeah, so that that is kind of what soil health is. And then I think the other aspect to it to understand is like we all know, or we all were taught again at GCSE that you know the way plants survive is that they photosynthesize and they use the sun's light um, combined with Gosh, I can't even remember. Combined with carbon dioxide, <laughs> um, and then they, and then they um, put that, turn that into sugars essentially, and they release oxygen. Um, and what they do with those sugars is that they use that for their own functioning. But actually, that's really important. Those sugars, because that is essentially carbon, which they then put down into their roots. Um, and it's been shown that plants put about forty. 40% of all their sugars into their roots. Um, and that's because that's the way they interact with this microbial world. So it's, they put, for example, a plant needs some phosphate, let's say. Um, and it's, it like literally sends down a little bit of <laughs> sugar into its roots and the sugar kind of says, puts out a signal saying um, in the roots saying, we need some phosphate. Um, and then the bacteria detect that signal and they want that sugar. <laughs> so they go down and they find um, some phosphate deeper in the soil. They're able to dissolve it or a fungus uh, can dissolve it and then the bacteria can eat the fungus. It can bring the phosphate back to the root. Um, and then it says, here you go, have some phosphate and I'll take that sugar, thank you. Um, and so those interactions are happening all the time, everywhere. Um, and that really is like the mechanism by which soil feeds plants, which then go on to feed us. Mm. And, that, that, and just that like beautiful, simplistic example you've given there just makes me understand a lot more than the previous sort of reductionist way of thinking about soil just being a collection of individual nutrients that we have to you know, ensure the growth of plants. Uh, and like you said, the carbon fixation through uh, photosynthesis and, and giving nutrition to, to the, the roots, it's actually feeding the biome of the soil. So this huge interconnected network 
that responds almost quite sophisticated in a very sophisticated manner to meet the needs of whatever the plant is. And, and I think we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but the roots of the plant are therefore very, very important. So the longer and more interconnected the roots and the hi-fi and all the different sort of organisms that interact with those roots, the better the quality of the soil um, because you have that like sort of symbiotic relationship, which is which is brilliant. And it's also scary when you put into context, I think I read something like a th- about a third of the world's soil has been degraded. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in terms of agricultural soils, so we're not talking about forests necessarily, but I would say gotcha. it's probably much higher than that in agricultural soils. Um, because one of the things I didn't mention in the soil health principles, which is a key one, is not plowing. Ah, okay. Um, because as soon as, you, <laughs> um, as soon as you till or plow the earth, obviously you're breaking up all of these networks, right? Mm. And also, you know, if you turn the earth, you're exposing the bacteria to sunlight. They wouldn't normally be in sunlight. Um, everything changes as soon as you plow. And mm. just to be clear with all these things, it's not like farmers who plow are bad. I don't think that at all. Um, and there's, mm. you know, there's plenty of reasons farmers may plow. It's not a dogma. It's just a recognition that, you know, if you are plowing, you have to be very aware that you're breaking up all these networks and what are you going to do about it? Because you're going to have to compensate for it. That's all. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think I would say, you know, plowing um, as well as chemical application, you know, together they have really not helped the soil in most parts of the world where there's agricultural intervention. Definitely. And and is there and, and this just comes back from you know me thinking out loud here is there an Im- impact of the soil microbiome and the plants that it produces and an impact on our microbiome because I think um, a lot more people are getting uh, a little bit more educated on how we live in, in a symbiotic relationship with a number of different microbes largely bacteria but nematodes fungi viruses even. Uh, in the same way our soil uh, is, you know, this huge network of, of microbes. Is there is there a relationship there as well that, that you're aware of? Well, I mean, I think that is like, I think there's a lot of very exciting cutting edge research in that area right now. And I don't think there's a definitive answer is the truth, but I do think there are some, it's like, incredible parallels between the two just the idea you know of the root system and this you know what we call the area around the roots is the rhizosphere um, and all of the interactions that are happening at that point and that that's how nutrition is transferred and then paralleling that with you know your gut lining um, and that huge surface area of the gut and that all the microbes that are living in our gut um, and how that's allowing the human to be nurtured And I think the other thing that's really interesting is the parallel between the requirement for diversity. Mm. So not only do you need a diversity in crops, but you also, in order to be able to get all the different nutrients that the plant wants, it's really important to have a huge diversity of microbial life. Um, As soon as that starts depleting, you know, that's linked to increased disease pressure um, because you know, you'll end up with an overpopulation of a certain nematode um, and then it actually starts being very negative and it'll like eat your potatoes rather than mm-hmm. <laughs> help uh, kill other things in the soil. Um, and similarly, 
um, my understanding of the microbiome of the gut, which I have to, you know, I am not um, fully informed on by any means, but I'm interested in, um, is that diversity is really, really important and that that is a large part of, you know, changing your eating habits to foster diversity um, and in particular fiber uh, as a way of doing that. I think that's really interesting. And yeah, and I think the next question, and I haven't read anyone who's absolutely said anything either way, <laughs> but is, are the, the microbial makeup of the soil, how much is that reflected in the gut? Um, and how, how much are they connected? And I think that's a massive question that I'm really excited as we uncover more over the next few years. Definitely. I mean, you, you're definitely right about diversity for sure. So I always like to, you know, bring the analogy of like bored children. You need to give them diverse things to do. And that's the same thing with your microbiota. You need to give them interesting bits of food and substrate to use a chemical uh, language. Um, but th there is advice. Uh, I, I forget the European organization now that you want to try and get... Um, 30 different varieties of food uh in a in a week um if possible to to try and nurture that diversity and actually nurture the health of your microbial population um and, and i wanted to touch on crop rotation there because that's super important from what i've read about regenerative farming um it sounds really time intensive because you can't just grow wheat year in year out you have to grow wheat what sometimes once every four years and then in the middle of that it's like things like clover and things like pulses and legumes that all sound very delicious to me but from from the perspective of a farmer who's trying to optimize their produce i can imagine it's it's quite a headache to deal with all that all those different you know um parameters can can you tell us a bit more about that absolutely yeah yeah i mean one of the other complexities of farming so um, and I mean, organic farmers have been doing this for a long, long time, um, but now most farmers are doing rotations today because they have to. And it is core to a lot of regenerative farming, as you say, it's one way of bringing diversity in. Um, and so basically, yeah, if you have any wheat grown in the UK, the require, you know, for wheat to grow, it requires a certain like nutrient profile and it is quite nitrogen intensive. Um, and so you have to have a lot of nitrogen in the soil to make a really good crop of wheat. Um, and if you do that one year, the next year, you're not going <laughs> to have very much left. Um, and then the year after that, they're just you won't even be able to harvest a crop, basically. So that's why you have to, if you grow your crop of wheat, then you have to do a whole um, nutrient building cycle to natu allow those natural systems to get back to a place where they've you know, re-upped the nitrogen levels in that soil. And that's why, um, you know, if as a farmer, say wheat is your main crop and you have um, X number of fields, you need to make sure that, or only if you have a four year rotation, only 25% of your farm can ever be in wheat in one year. Um, and then, you know, you, the next part of your rotation may well be clover, probably for two, maybe three years. Um, and uh, more common today is not just clover, obviously, but a, a herbal, um, they call it herbal lay, or it's just a, a mix of lots of different types of grasses and herbs um, and different flowers to, it's all, yeah, it's all this idea of how can we work with the soil 
to bring back the nutrients we need in order to be able to grow that next crop of wheat. Um, yeah, so I think it, and it, there's huge like potential there as well. And that's what's really exciting. Like, um, I think you've talked about Hodmedads before, mm, mm. but you know, they're really working with farmers in this brilliant way where they're saying, look, uh, you know, if you grow this Carlin P as part of your rotation, you know, in the third year, say, um, we can actually have that be something humans can eat. You know, so not only is it like doing great work in your soil, but we can also then share that with people um, in the UK. And it's all like, you know, for farmers, that's amazing because they need to be able to pay for that field that year. Um, and it's about nourishing human beings. Uh, you know, Carlin peas are brilliant. Um, so I think although the rotation can seem a headache, I think more and more opportunities are opening up for it to actually be like um, a real positive um, and for us to be eating diets that reflect rotations would be an amazing end goal. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, just for listeners who don't know what the Carlin P is, it's this, um, it's almost like a broad bean, uh, a cross between a broad bean and a chickpea almost. It tastes delicious. It's a beautiful pulse. It's fibrous and full of protein. Um, and, and, you know, m my first sort of initial reaction to the idea of crop rotation was, well, that's not going to be very economically viable for a farmer because they're going to negate the uh, yield for a couple of years whilst they're trying to improve the, their soil health. But actually, from the perspective that you've just given is that it's actually quite an interesting opportunity to not only nourish the soil, but also diversify your your income stream as well and I'm, I'm saying this as a complete lay person so i might be completely wrong um but it, that's a lovely segue into another topic that i get asked about a lot which is bioavailability and how soil health is impacting negatively or in this regenerative farming method potentially positively the nutritional content of food and this is where it kind of plays into my um interest in uh, food and 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 health and, and disease prevention um what what can we talk about when it comes to bioavailability of food how that's progressed over the last couple of decades and and how this method of farming impacts um uh the, the nutritional content of the produce yeah totally well i think there's a, you know, a number of studies out there that, def that show that over the last 60 to 70 years, there's been a decrease in the nutritional value of our food, um, partic particularly some um, uh, specific elements like, for example, iron um, and also uh, different, yeah, different nutri- like it's difficult in a way to say how nutritional is that food, right? <laughs> Because we've only ever looked at calories in the past and suddenly we're trying to say well it's got x y and z therefore it's nutritionally relevant but i think as science is progressing we're realizing our understanding is actually very limited on what is nutritionally relevant so i think but for sure like there's a study that shows that you know for oranges um the vit the vitamin c content that for example would have um, our grandparents could have got from one orange, we would now need to eat eight oranges. So that eight oranges, something wow. like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so it's definitely changing um, and reducing in some way. Mm -hmm. 
there is also, I guess the reason I said that about our, our understanding is limited because there are also many, um, you know, reports, scientific papers out there that say, well, actually, you know, the uh, magnesium content hasn't changed at all. So it depends what you're focusing on in some ways, but it's definitely changing and there's definitely reductions in certain ways. And I think a lot of that, you know, people have um, said that that and have shown that that is related to the reduction in nutrients in our soil. Okay. Um, and in particular, um, there's a movement and from within the farming community, actually, to start to think about, you know, what is the nutritional density of our food? Um, and I think, you know, one thing that's really important to always remember is that farmers, well, many, many farmers that I meet, they really do care um, mm -hmm. and they want to be creating food that nourishes people. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's true of many, many farmers. Um, and so this amazing movement from within the farming community, which is sort of led by the Bionutrient Food Association in the United States, um, is all about how can we start to ensure that we're delivering food with high nutrient density to people. Um, and that's where there's a, a UK kind of subsidiary of that uh, movement now called Griffin or G-R-F-F-N, um, Growing Food for Nutrition. Um, and they are focused on helping people to measure the nutrient density of the food we're producing. And so how do we actually measure the nutrient density of food? Because in, in my head, there's almost like two snapshot ways you could you could compare food. One is looking at the typical sort of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. And those can be quite closely matched between different types of produce and, and different methods of farming. But it's those secondary metabolites, the things that I'm super interested in, like, you know, phytonutrients um, or the different polyphenols in food, the pigments, the the actual natural, to, to you know, use that, that term, I guess, um, the natural pesticides that the plant produces to ward itself off from, from pests um, and, and, and how we measure those and the differences between them. Uh, I, I understand that there's like, you know, the BRICS test and bionutrient sensors, but I, this is a whole mindful for me because I haven't even, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had first-hand use of this. So. <laughs> totally. And I think, I think phytonutrients are incredibly interesting because in a way that is the direct relationship to soil health. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if phytonutrients, you know, plants can't move, so they need to be able to produce their own defenses. And if the way plants you know, start to defend themselves is through this communication network. Um, when the communication network's broken um, and they aren't able to gather the different nutrients or the different things they need from the soil, then their phytonutrient response or what they produce in that sense is, is going to change. Mm. And I do think that that, um, I mean, the, the, you know, the simplest expression of that is, um, growing things that aren't in soil um, and seeing that, you know, you can give them the, the, the NPK, the nitrogen, potassium and phosphate, but they don't, they've been shown to not as not produce phytonutrients in the same way. Okay. So that's hydroponics versus produce grown in, in soil. 
Yeah, and I guess part of that is just because they also, you know, because they're being grown in such like safe environments, they're not being exposed to those uh, same risks as such, and therefore they have no requirement to create phytonutrients. Um, and therefore, when you're eating food that hasn't been under <laughs> any stress in its life, you're you're eating food that doesn't have the phytonutrients in it. Um, Sorry, I feel like I went circular off your question there. What was the original question? <laughs> oh, the, the original question was basically how we measure nutrient density in food itself. And, um, and yeah, and the standards around that. Totally. So I think, so the Griffin, um, they are working with the Bio, Bionutrient Association to create what they're calling a bionutrient meter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the as you said, the most basic understanding of of uh, nutritional density of a or nutrient density of a food is this BRICS test. But really, the BRICS test um, it's just telling you essentially the 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 carbohydrate content or the sugar content of that food. Um, and also, you can you can sort of tell a little bit also from a BRICS test how complex the different um, the makeup of the molecules is by how fuzzy the line is essentially. But other than that, you can't tell much more from a BRICS test, as far as I understand it. Um, so that, but that's still a really good initial measure. Like if you were growing some carrots and you wanted mm-hmm. to understand, you know, how nutrient dense they are, you could take a few carrots, crush them up with a garlic crusher, and then you can buy a BRICS meter. They're like ten pounds online, um, and you can put the juice and see, you know, what is your BRICS reading, and then compare different ones. Um, but the bionutrient meter is very much, it's a work in progress. So they have created something that is based on spectroscopy, essentially, or a spectral analysis. Um, and you probably know more about this than me. <laughs> but uh, my understanding is that it's like looking at all the different kind of um, molecules or things that are found in that um, food um, on a graph almost. And then it's the idea of the whole movement is to start to map that to different um, ways of codifying what does it mean to have a nutrient-dense food. So it's by no means already uh, set in stone what that means, if you see what I mean. It's meant to, it's like a basically a, a global citizen science project to start to map, uh, have many, many people use this bionutrient meter, um, share their spectral analyses, and then start to map where are, you know, what, oh, okay, so these carrots also had um, a, a good smell and they were also from a, a you know, uh, I don't know, they had all these other qualities and they had this spectral analysis. What does that mean? So it, it's a bit, it, yeah, it's all up in the air at the moment and it's a big mapping project to start to be able to define what is a nutrient dense food. That's brilliant. I, I can so imagine like a lot of people getting involved in that, either growing at home or buying produce from certain supermarkets or certain growers and actually measuring that and uploading the data online. It's it's like this new wave of social experimentation, which everyone sort of contributes to in terms of, um, you know, providing the data, which leads to a much more sort of robust um, data set, which is ripe for analysis. Um, that's amazing. That, that sounds super, super interesting. And, and the, the other aspect, I think, is the bioavailability of the food, right? So, you know, you can have um, breads, just to use an example that you talked about quite a bit, obviously, in the cereal episode um, of your podcast, where 
a bread can you know have on the packaging it contains zinc it contains magnesium it contains riboflavin uh, one of the b vitamins um but the bioavailability of those vitamins may be different depending on how the bread was created i.e its fermentation process the amounts of different anti-nutrients um etc is that something that bionutrient sensors and, and bionutrient meters can assess as well or is that like another sort of experiment yeah i so i i don't think we're there yet (laughs) 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 is the truth i mean i think that um obviously the bioavailability of different nutrients is also key to it all um and as Mm. you said in the cereal series um like andrew whitley of scotland the bread he talks a lot about how uh the sourdough fermentation um changes the bioavailability of nutrients um and so i've heard yeah i've heard a lot about that in terms of um kind of once something's uh come out of the ground um then in the processing of it how we manipulate the bioavailability of things um Mm. in terms of the bioavailability bioavailability of nutrients directly from the farm or the whatever's coming off the farm and how that is affected by the farming methods Mm. i don't know but i think it's a good really good question yeah because it, it almost speaks to this new measurement of output or productivity from farms being you know the number of people nourished per hectare rather than the mass produced of said crop per hectare and i know that sounds like quite a fantastical sort of idea or you know something that most farmers wouldn't want to change according to like how how everything is done and, and because it's so traditional but i i think that would be an amazing accomplishment if we were able to do that because you know it's not ju- when you when you produce crop it's uh, you know uh, even for animals it's not just about the mass or the the produce itself it's about how it nourishes because that's fundamentally what farming's there for it's to nourish populations agreed yeah and i think i think a lot of farmers would be open to that you know how many uh, people are nourished per acre from this farm. Like I think actually they are excited about that um, because, you know, I mean I can get into a real tangent here, but the truth is is like most farmers feel well. I shouldn't say most, but many farmers I talk to feel quite disillusioned with um, the process in many ways because although farmers are producing food, a lot of it is just commodities. Um, and you know commodities are essentially something they grow wheat but then they never know what happens to that wheat it just gets shipped off in a big truck um, and then it's like traded somewhere on global markets um, who know you know they don't know what happens to it or it or it goes to feed chickens or it's just unknown so although they are in a quote-unquote producing food actually it become very disconnected from that reality. And I think that was something else in the cereal series that really came up was um, (laughs) by talking to bakers, um, farmers, uh, one farmer in particular, Mark Lee um, in Shropshire, you know, he had this real epiphany moment where he has a grain store on his farm. He's had it for like, whatever, 20, 20 years and growing wheat all that time. And He'd never considered going into the grain store, getting some of the wheat he had grown, 
grinding it up in a little mini mill and then making something from it. <laughs> wow. He just, it just hadn't been considered. And, and I think, you know, and a number of farmers got in touch with us after that, after we created this series cereal, mm. um, and said like, I had never ever considered eating the wheat that I'd grown and how much that impacted them in terms of being able to reconnect with the idea that they are food producers. Yeah. Um, and, and that that's a real honor um, and that they do want to be doing that. And that's where the joy comes from, or that's part of the joy of farming. And so the idea that, you know, seeing their farm as nutrients or, you know, nutritional value per acre to people is like, I think people, yeah, farmers get excited about that. That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I mean, what, what, I, I'm conscious that we're painting this beautiful picture of regenerative farming and how like, you know, utopian it is and, you know, farming based on soil health, reducing inputs, more trees, more crop rotation, introducing animals. It sounds very, very beautiful. But I wonder what are the arguments against this method of farming and, and is this achievable at scale because i think that's one of the major arguments against organic farming which is a, a sort of less extreme or like you know regenerative farming light if you will version of uh, of of crop production but um i wonder kind of what are the arguments and, and the cons of, of regen farming as it stands well I, I think one of the interesting things about regenerative farming and i think sorry this isn't quite answering your question i will answer your question as well but Sure. Um, one of the interesting things about regenerative farming and why it is becoming such a name really is that it's not as dogmatic as organic farming. So from a farmer's perspective, there's lots of reasons to not be organic because it's, it's, a, real, um, it's a very structured kind of tick box exercise in a way. Whereas there's many um, chemical based farmers who maybe focusing on their soil health and biodiversity and becoming regenerative, you know, they're on a regenerative journey and they're still using chemicals on their farm. And I, you know, that's just, that's part of it. Like, you know, a farmer, Fred Price in Somerset, he's over the last eight years transitioned from a completely chemical based or conventional farm to now a, he's basically organic. He's not certified, but he doesn't use any inputs or chemical inputs on his farm. And I think, you know, all through that journey, you would say he was becoming a regen or he was on a regenerative journey because he was, it started with focusing on his soil health, but then all these other things come up and you start to change the way you do everything. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's actually quite an inclusive um, uh, practice. Uh, and it's not there to shame people or say they're not doing things right. It's about, okay, well, actually, this could be quite helpful to you. Even, you know, even if you want to continue farming in the way you are, just even starting to ask questions about your soil health probably is going to help you out. Um, yeah. On the other hand, who are the critics? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there's certainly a, a pervasive narrative or story out there that says that we need intensive industrial farming to feed the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's amazing how strong that is in people. And also the other argument against it is that people often think that 
you know, regenerative farming will mean more expensive food. Um, but what I would say um, about the first point anyway is that currently today, the Food and Agricultural Organization, uh, FAO, um, they put out a statistic that says that 70% of the world's food today comes from small-scale family farms using only 30% of the world's agricultural resources. And then only 30% of the world's food today comes from large-scale farms. Wow. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have guessed those figures. I would have thought it would have been exactly the other way around. Totally. And I think, I, you know, I can kind of understand why those figures stand. That's because basically a lot of intensive or, or larger scale industrial farming is about producing these commodities and commodities don't generally feed people, right? They go to feed animals for one, or they go to be made into energy. Um, so there's a huge amount of uh, farming that's done today that is actually producing crops that feed animals or are used for energy production. So that I think it's not food is the truth. <laughs> Even though it may appear to be food when it's in the field, um, those crops are not food. And I, I think, yeah, I, you know, again, I think it's always important to not judge people. Like I totally get why farmers grow commodities um, and it's the system they're part of and they're making a living and they're doing their business. and. You know, I have respect for it, in fact, like they're doing what they need to do. But if we recognize that that's the system we've built, um, it's not particularly effective for feeding humans, basically. Um, so, yeah. So I think once you start to realize that that kind of perspective, then you can see that, oh, wow. OK, so actually we've got a system uh, that's great for commodity production, not so great for food production, even making little changes, um, you know, even just say a farmer takes one field and starts to grow that in a slightly different way, and then they're able to sell it to a local mill. Um, those small changes are really going to start to really kind of transform the food system, I would say, um, to being one of just production to one of feeding people. Yeah, because I, like one of the main arguments, and, I, and I'll be honest, I, I was of this opinion myself as well, perhaps before I started reading into this, is that well, you have to have industrial farming and intensive farming to feed the number of people and the number of people that will exist in the next 10, 15 years time, um, because there is no other more um productive way of producing food but this this was a real eye-opener for me because i didn't actually i mean I, I haven't paid much attention to it i guess in the last five years i mean it was only until i, I started examining it in a bit more detail but um th that's definitely the narrative that's been painted and i think a lot of people would 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 still believe that understandably so yeah yeah exactly and i I think like there was just a paper released uh, in the last few weeks that showed, for example, that, you know, intercropping. So um, uh, growing two crops together can give a 16 to 30 percent larger yield per unit and area than a monoculture while wow. using 30, 19 to 30 percent less fertilizer. And that was um, a research a project done in China. And they showed that outcome over a number of years. And so I think that 
the idea that we're like <laughs> at the pinnacle of human invention in our farming endeavors and that this monocultural commodity system is is the ultimate like i mean if i was in my most kind of um conspiracy theory mode or some of my friends who are more into that they'd say like oh you know the agrochemical country companies are selling us a lie right i don't i don't actually believe people are evil generally so i don't think people are actively trying to con us um i think there are many people out there who still very much believe that that is the pinnacle of human uh, endeavors in agriculture um but it's not what you see on the ground and that's i think the difference like it may look that way on their spreadsheets but the reality is is that when you go to farms and see what's being grown it's the smaller scale farms that actually grow food wow that's super powerful <laughs> and it's yeah it's definitely something um i'm going to be paying a lot more attention and 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 to this this is a beautiful segue from the conspiracy theories around log agritech companies controlling the masses um seeds and this whole heritage grain movement and grain sovereignty so we'd, i did a podcast earlier in the year with karen um from the yummy tummy company wonderful woman um a, amazing person who's super passionate about bread and everything and um, she started talking about seed banks and, and what the issues are with that. And th some of the comments on social media were quite dismissive of some of the remarks. And I remember we had a conversation about this. Um, and, and I wonder, because I'm not, I'm still educating myself on this. I wonder if you could lend your two cents on seed banks, what they are, what the controversies around them are, and, uh, and what this new movement around grain sovereignty and, and heritage grains is. So it's a big question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah. Well, I'd say, I, I think um, what happened, or my understanding of what's happened in the seed world, particularly, let's, if we just focus in on cereals, essentially, so mm. around, for example, wheat, is that um, laws were passed in the EU, um, and similar in the US, and it's similar in many countries, that say it's meant to be like a, almost like a biosecurity law. So it's kind of, it's meant to protect farmers so that they aren't being sold seed that's bad. Um, and it's also meant to pr protect kind of, um, yeah, it's meant to protect everyone in terms of not, in, not allowing this kind of uh, trade of seeds that is weakening the quality of our uh, produce. But um, what happened with that law is that they said, okay, you are only allowed to share or sell seeds if they're on this list which is verified by the eu and as soon as you get that kind of uh you know <laughs> it's almost like a very you know it's a register and you have to pay to be on the register um, and you have to have gone through extensive scientific trials on your seeds to be on the register um, and you also have to hit um a certain you know, they had some measures of what a good seed was. And that was like, your seeds had to be uniform. Um, uh, oh, what are the exact words? They have three exact words that they have to be. Is it genetically stable, different variety? Yeah, uniform, uh, uniform, or oh, distinct and stable. Yes, yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly. Okay, and so what, 
Yeah, what happened is essentially that, of course, only the companies who can afford to be doing the research at that level um, and uh, you know afford to get all these um, certificate certificates from the bodies that say yes or no were able to create seeds um, that were on the market, and then those you know and so and farmers were only allowed to use those seeds. That's the crazy thing. It's like. Even if you wanted to give some of your seeds to your neighbor, that is illegal. Wow. And that's that's where it becomes really weird, right? Um, because, yeah, it's just, it, that's not okay to be so controlling of seeds, which are something that's almost like, you know, they're a... Um, they're owned by everyone, or in my view, they should be owned by everyone. They're part of the natural world, um, and they're the root of humanity in a way, because without them, we're not going to get very far. <laughs> yeah. um, so that register, it, it's, it's, it came from a good place, potentially, but it has had some really negative impacts. And one of those is that those um, uniform, discrete, and stable um, requirements meant that um, there's no diversity in the seeds. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about diversity as being key. Mm. And this is what I wanted to ask you about, because one of the one of the requirements is that it's genetically stable. That that for me doesn't make sense from an evolutionary point of view, because you want something to be genetically almost uh, malleable as it grows and adapts to our rapidly changing climate as well, right? So, so that for me immediately as a non-farmer someone who who doesn't understand this just strikes me as a little bit odd and from what i've understood from from you guys the podcast a few other bits of uh, reading i've done around this is that um there's this real drive to trade sort of non-registered or unlisted seeds in an an effort not to you know create some interesting crops but actually in an effort to sort of save the planet because if we are creating a, a, a number of different products and, and crops that are, are not adaptable, then we're going to have to rely even more so on inputs and artificial environments to maintain the health of them. Absolutely. And I think that is key. So that's one of the really exciting things and um, that has kind of responded to those requirements. So there's um, a, a man called Professor Martin Wolf. Um, mm. He passed away last year, unfortunately, yeah, and very sadly, but he was a real um, pioneer in this area because he is, you know, he was a professor in Cambridge um, in plant sciences. And originally he was developing um, uh, different like fungicides and his whole aim was around, you know, how can we beat these, these fungi or these fungal uh, yeah, the problem, the disease, fungal diseases. Mm. Um, and kind of his insight was that he was never going to beat the fungal diseases because every single year <laughs> they were changing. You know, as you just pointed out, they're like the genetics adapt and evolve and it's constantly evolving. And so the, what he spent the last 20 years of his life committed to is this place um, in Suffolk called Wakelands, Wakelands Agroforestry. And it's like... I don't know, it's like the scientific center of diversity. <laughs> um, wow. And it's like filled with different trees um, and it's showing what it might look like to grow with diversity at the core. And as part of that, he had a breeding program um, where he bred this 
what they call a population wheat. Um, so he took many different modern varieties of wheat and he crossed the genetics between all of them. Um, and then he uh, planted those crossed genetics. Um, and obviously what he got out was a um, wheat field which had lots of unpredictable characteristics essentially. Um, and then he kept building that um, population um, and now it's called the, the YQ um, population and he was breeding it for yield and quality. That's why it's called YQ. So YQ. not just yield, which is what people have often bred for. And I think uh, just to be clear what a population is, a population means that all this, you know, the genetics of all the seeds is different essentially, or there's a lot of different genetics in the seeds. Um, you know, most wheat fields you see are monocultures, um, and that is what the seed registry says, is like every single seed must have exactly the same genetics, otherwise it's no good. But that is crazy <laughs> because, you know, if a pest comes along or if a disease comes along, it can wipe out that whole field like in seconds almost, you know, it's just like, it's so easy to, uh, to destroy. Or if, you know, if you get a hailstorm at the wrong side, wrong time, and every single one of those plants is just bursting into life, it may destroy all of them at once because they're all at exactly the same uh, time in their cycle. Whereas yeah. if you have a population wheat, so you have a field with all these different wheats that have slightly different genes and respond slightly differently to the environment, um, then they're, you know, they're all at different stages when a, uh, the hailstorm hits. And so some of them will go down, but some of them will be fine and they'll carry on growing. And um, so, yeah, and part of his insight was that resilience um, or the ability to kind of beat, in inverted commas, these fungal diseases actually comes through having huge genetic diversity um, mm -hmm. in the field. And that's the only way that you'll be able to kind of survive in the long term mm -hmm. in an ever-changing climate. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is a really amazing insight um, that resilience truly comes through diversity. And so the more we can move away from monocultures and these very kind of uh, one-dimensional seeds into the diversity and seeds that have lots of genetic variation, um, the better off we'll be, especially you know, in the face of ch changing climates and yeah. who knows what's to come. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, right now we understand how vulnerable we are as a population. Um, and it sounds as if some of these strict regulations, whether it came from a good place or a bad place or whatever, is impeding natural evolution, um, promoting monoculture and makes it a lot more vulnerable to the, the changing uh, climate. Um, what I understand is that uh, there have been some efforts to almost bypass some of these laws or um, encourage trading of unlisted seeds? Is that is that still going ahead? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not many farmers get on the radio and talk about it, but absolutely. Like, um, well, I guess 
you know, they, they recognize the need for this as much as anyone. And also there's huge demand now for it. So heritage wheats are, are slightly different than what Martin Wolf created because he was using modern wheat varieties to create these populations. But there's also heritage wheats um, and they are, you know, uh, seeds kind of from wheats that were like pre or that haven't been bred since like, I think it's around the 1950s. Mm. Everyone has a slightly different definition. But anyway, they're older seeds varieties. Um, and so they inherently haven't been through this kind of monocultural breeding process. And so they have more genetic diversity in them often. Um, okay. And so, yeah, a lot. And, and they, the bakers are now demanding them. Not demanding, that's awful. But they're really excited about them is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, farmers, obviously, when they see bakers excited about something, they want to grow it. Um, so they're out there, um, there's, I'm not going to name anyone, but there's certainly like there's grain, there's grain networks out there um, now and it's all, you know, it's connecting bakers to millers to farmers and they're all working together to um, build up the uh, infrastructure, I guess, so that we can, you know, have more bread that is made using these grains that have all this diversity in them. Um, so it's almost like you could imagine, it's like eating a regenerative loaf in a sense, because you can know yeah. that the soil um, in the field where that wheat, that population wheat was grown, um, was actually being nourished through growing that wheat rather than depleted. And, and, and this brings me on to the other topic about politics and farming. You can't really talk about growing food without really talking about subsidies, um, how farmers are, uh, are repaid uh, and um, you know compensated for, for the work um, and the changing landscape of uh, the UK, EU and how that might change uh, laws around uh, seeds um, but also uh, yeah like I said like how farmers are uh, remunerated for, for the work what um what do you think is going to go on with, I know this is like the ultimate question, but like post-Brexit, is there anything suggestive of a positive outcome from leaving the EU? Yep. <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's certainly, it, you know, change always brings opportunity, I would say, um, okay. in one sense. And, I agree. Um, and so I think that there's definitely... Over the last few years, the farming community in many ways has felt like there was opportunity because of this subsidy system change. So, I mean, I think it's really important to paint a picture that like 60% of income on UK farms comes from subsidies. Wow. So it's really important to most UK farms. Like, you know, we don't pay very much for our food farm or and certainly like if you're buying for a supermarket, it's something mm -hmm. like less than 5% of the amount you pay is going back to the farmer. Wow. It's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. Maybe, that, maybe it's 10%. But anyway, the point is it should be much, much higher and it's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, yeah, so at the farm level, you're not getting much back for your food. Um, so especially if it's going through a supermarket. Um, and so they are relying on subsidies. And so in that sense, they're always having to understand, you know, what kind of boxes they need to tick for the government in order to get their subsidies. Mm. Um, and so the fact that we're no longer in the EU means that the, now the UK government is going to determine how farmers get paid their subsidies. 
And uh, until, you know, in the EU, it's always been that, well, in the last, whatever, 20 years, it's been based on that you get paid based on how much land you have. That's like the basic payment structure. And then there were some environmental schemes on top of that. <clears throat> and the government said that that's absolutely going. So, which ever, I think pretty much everyone agrees is a good thing. Like it doesn't make any sense to get paid more if you have more land. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, so, and what they're looking to bring in is an environmental land management scheme. Um, it's still very much in early stages, but you know, the, the tagline is public money for public goods. And it's the idea that, um, you know, uh, improving water quality, having more different types of birds on your farm, um, having more earthworms in your soil. All of these are things that essentially are a public good. Um, and so can we find ways to have uh, farmers be paid for these environmental gains that that positively affect all of us as we kind of that's where we started in a way you know it's like if they do have a, f a forest on their land you know by keeping that in a good state that is a good for all of us like we all benefit mm -hmm. from that um so can we find a system that works for that so i think there's still a ways to go um what exactly what that's going to look like but you know in its most basic form it sounds better. Um, as with all these things, it will just, it's all devils in the detail. <laughs> and yeah. um, it's, it's going to be difficult to find a way of um, having, you know, positively compensating farmers for that without forcing them to do weird things um, to get that money. Um, and I think the other side to it also that's almost more daunting is the trade deals. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the agricultural food, the agricultural bill was, or is almost basically being passed right now. Um, and a number of the farming community, including the National Farmers Union, the NFU, had tried to um, add in something about not allowing uh, for food imports from countries where the food standards were lower. Um, and that was voted down. Um, so that addendum has not been put in. Um, mm. So we'll see when they build the, the trade policy or the trade bill. You know, I guess we all need to come together. You know, if you care or if you don't want um, your meat, it may be cheaper, but it will be potentially like, you know, coming from the US, their standards are very different. and potentially lower and it may be filled with many more hormones um, or for example the chickens are dipped in chlorine because uh, the living environment of the chickens is is so kind of filthy that they want to make sure they get rid of all of the um, microbes on those poorly kept chickens um, so if we don't want that to be coming into our system then we really need to rally around and tell the government that we don't want that yeah, I, I think most people listening to this and even people who don't, you know, will will recognize that the American food system is 
a lot more broken than most countries, particularly like industrialized countries. And I'm pretty sure everyone would unite in thinking that, you know, we can't let that happen. Um, and I really hope that that doesn't, particularly from the example that you've talked about, and I think a lot more people uh, are aware of that as it's made national press, but also the argument around GMO as well. And this is like the big, big question. And I, I, you know, I've taken, <laughs> it's taken so long to get to this point and I, I, it probably warrants its own podcast um, for people looking at pro and against. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I understand what your view of GMO is going to be. Um, I think it's important to point out that within the EU, GMO is very, uh, it's rare from my understanding. It's not something that is ingrained in our system. But now with Brexit, who knows? Uh, You know, there are trade deals to be struck, particularly with America, where GMO is used a lot. Uh, I wonder if you can give us your thoughts on GMO and and the comparisons with with the gene editing as well, which is a, a relatively newer concept. Yeah, so I think, you know, I am a scientist by training and I can understand why many people in the science world are excited about GMOs. Um, Because in many ways it does, you know, it makes sense that we can, we don't have to deal with disease at the end, we'll just edit it out in the beginning. Um, (laughs) And I, yeah, so I get that. On the other hand, I think that, you know, if we go back to just that, that comment about monoculture versus diversity, you can't breed diverse GMO seeds. Like that's not a thing, right? Diversity is something that occurs through this process of evolution that's happening naturally. Like we, we aren't, so as soon as you go down the gene editing, the GMO route, you're, you're trapped back in that monocultural system. Um, and my perspective is that the more we, go down that route, there will be new problems that come up. <laughs> and so we're just like, um, you know, te- technological and scientific progress. Um, obviously, I'm not anti that by any means, but I think we need to just recognize that that system, we've kind of reached our peak with it and it just isn't working um, for, you know, and for many people. Um, and we're just constantly in a fight against nature. I think. You know, there's one regenerative farmer in the U.S. guy called Gabe Brown, and he he puts it really well to me, like what the difference between regenerative farming and this more monocultural GMO based system is. He used to wake up every morning and think, what am I going to kill today? Now he wakes up and thinks, what am I going to make prosper on my farm today? And I think that that is like you know, if you just look inside yourself, uh, there's just no question which one is going to feed us better. You know, it's not about what can we kill. It's not about what can we control or it's not over controlling things. It's about recognizing we have these systems we can work with um, and we can all prosper on them. And let's see what we can do to nourish rather than kill essentially mm, yeah and and with gene editing j- just to clarify for the um for, for the listener it's uh it's sort of like sort of like gmo light it's where you edit very certain parts of the genome to for to, to foster certain attributes but 
to your explanation, it's still encouraging monoculture because you're not really allowing the um, the crop to naturally evolve. You're essentially speeding up the process, and when you when you essentially disable its ability to evolve, you become reliant on further gene editing to uh, to make the necessary adaptations. Uh, artificially to suit the environment. Am, am I correct in saying well, that? Well, and not only, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think on top of that, you know, the other side to that is that uh, GMO and gene editing both require commercial interest because they're, they're expensive, right? Mm. Um, and so maybe, maybe it will become a thing and we will be able to produce seeds that have diversity in them inherently, naturally. But... Mm. The way I understand how that system works, um, and certainly any seed produced by a large seed company today, they only produce genetically identical seeds, right? right? I don't think they have a technology to produce seeds where every single gene is different. Um, like, for example, in Martin Wolf's fields, he reckons that in a YQ population, within a two-acre field of wheat, there wouldn't be any two um, seeds that were genetically identical in any way. Wow. So it's it's really, really a lot of difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so here, you know, I guess the point is really is that the commercial seed system, which is what GMO and gene editing is part of, you know, they, yeah, and I mean, that's another side to it is essentially, as soon as a company goes and gene edits a crop, it owns that crop or certainly in many cases, they, they own the IP of that seed or the um, intellectual property of that seed. Um, and that, um, you know, and then they want to be able to replicate it. Because <laughs> I, I think that's like where the money's made, right? You come up with this amazing technology, you create, you do all the scientific research, you come up with something that, oh, wow, we found something that was resistant to this disease or for example, you can sp spray glyphosate on it and it won't kill it. Great, let's copy that and sell it to everyone. Um, and, and that is monoculture. Like that, that is what monoculture is. It's those genetically identical seeds. So yeah, I mean, the, I brought up, or the, that's another issue with um, a lot of the GMO stuff. And I think particularly from a health perspective, it's something that people are becoming more and more concerned about is that a lot of um, a lot of GMOs ha in the U.S. Um, are genetically edited so that you can spray herbicide, it, often talked about as glyphosate, or most people may know it as Roundup. That's what it you know is in the supermarkets. Um, you can spray that on the plant, and the plant won't die. Um, and so, what's happened is that uh, across huge swathes of the U.S. Um, for example, wheat fields um, have been regularly sprayed with this Roundup throughout their growing life. Um, and you end up with just like huge amounts of herbicides being used um, and pesticide, you know, everything being thrown on these crops again and again um, because you can. Um, and so that's sort of been one of the downsides of GMO is that that is part of like soil degradation. That's part of biodiversity degradation is that it's all about, it's all about the inputs. Mm. 
Um, and then the final point about GMO, I think, is key is like, again, it comes back to food and a huge amount of the GM crops in this world think it's like well over 50% um, do not go to feed human beings, right? So again, we get told this story that we need GM to feed the world, but actually a lot of what GM is is about big business. It's about um, being able to, uh, you know, sell for energy biofuels, or it's about being able to feed animals and grow more soy so you can feed more animals. Um, and it just, yeah, <laughs> it's just like, we're, I do feel like we're sold a bit of a lie there. Um, and it's really important to go see for yourself and talk to farmers about where food is really grown, not just what calories are produced or how much in inverted commas food is produced. Yeah, I I really agree with the sentiments there. And I think um, I'm certainly of the opinion um, that we should we should not play around with nature. Uh, and I think our human sciences Power, you know, uh, comparatively very, very reductionist when it comes to the incredible beauty and um, efficiency of nature and its uh, and and how we've evolved. Um, the counter narrative that I know I would get for someone suggesting that GMO is completely out of the you know uh, off the table and we shouldn't encourage it is um is privilege and uh, it's you know this argument that. Well, you're privileged. You can afford high, you know, costing food, whether it be organic or biodynamic or regenerative, whatever you want to call it. And you are inadvertently keeping people who are living on the breadline uh, at bay. And it's, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's a form of discrimination almost. What do you say to people with counter arguments in that respect? Because I'm sure you've heard that many, many a time. Yeah, I mean, I get that argument. Again, I would go back to the fact that actually GM isn't feeding people, so don't give me that argument. Like 70% of the world's food, and I think food is the key, is not being produced by industrial agriculture. It is not being produced by GM-based systems. So I understand that you may look out in the fields of Europe and see a lot of crops being grown, but they're not food, and let's not pretend they are. Um, on the other side of that, I think, you know, I have also engaged with smaller scale growers in different countries, um, you know, in Uganda, in Malawi. Um, and what I'm hearing from those people, um, and in a way, I think this almost links into um, land justice and racial justice in a way, is that they want to take they want control of their system, right? Um, they want that the sovereignty over the food that they're growing. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's actually a return to growing methods that don't require, you know, if they have a bad year and they don't get a good crop, they want to have growing methods where they're able to plant the seeds from those crops, or, you know, from past years. They don't want to be reliant on having to pay someone else for their seeds, having to pay someone else for their fertilizers. Um, so, you know, there's a balance to be struck, obviously, in all of these things. Um, but I do think that I've never heard um, 
a small scale grower say to me, oh, I really wish I could have some of those GM seeds. <laughs> just yeah. just yeah. doesn't happen. Like to me, it's actually an arrogance that we think that we need to give these people these GM seeds. Um, it's almost the same arrogance around cheap food in the UK where people say like, oh, well, what about the people, you know, if you go organic or regenerative, um, they're not going to be able to afford food. And I would turn that around and say, how can we think that it's okay that some people in our country are fed non-nutritious food? And that's basically because they can't afford anything else. Like that's not okay to be, I completely agree. to be, it's just all it is is like oh oh great let's make some cheap food and hide the problem mm. but it it doesn't honor the human beings it's not actually nourishing um and so i think yeah i mean you can tell i'm all about like talking to people hearing what people have to say um and i'm open to the fact that you know i'm sure there are some places where people are more desperate and it could be the case that actually um you know some crop that was desert or some gm crop that was um more suited to the desert environments was helpful um but i think that's almost always in the short term and in the longer term what we want to be doing is building systems based on diversity um, that is really nourishing the local people as well as their businesses um, and I don't think that's done through uh, <laughs> the, the white people of the West telling everyone else what to do, essentially. I, I, I'm really glad you talked about that so openly because um, it's certainly something that I come up, up, I come up against when it comes to food insecurity, the quality of food, why inherently I know we should be producing much better quality food and we shouldn't be using inputs and we should be you know moving to a more regenerative um, method of production but it's that fear of being called out of being someone who comes from privilege who is not being inclusive um, that kind of puts the brakes on and I think you've definitely inspired me to be a bit more outspoken about that particularly when you think about the the planet in a wider context so I, i've recently come across you know the nine planetary boundaries and how farming methods impact those um and the nine planetary boundaries for, for i mean that'll be another podcast i'm sure but I'll, I'll put a link on to what those are um and what we're currently experiencing which is uh colloquially known as the sixth mass extinction event also known as the anthropocene extinction whereby we are massively reducing diversity in species across um uh, across the world um and so when you put it into those huge contexts this is a problem that we need to find a solution for it's not uh, a question of well you know, you might be inadvertently pushing down people who don't come from privilege. Actually, we need to raise everyone up to the same level of standard. And that's the problem we need to solve, not pander to the problem as it is at the moment. Agreed. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is a massive, a massive question. And I think what we're increasingly realize is how interlinked it all is. 
mm. um, and how our um, our day-to-day decisions about the food systems and where we buy our food um, they are very linked to the nine planetary there are the planetary boundaries um, and this mass extinction and we're we're all in it together I think that's the other realization for me is like privileged or not we're all in this together um, and we better come together if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna get through this because um, it's just not it's no small feat um, but I do think you know like you know on Farmerama we are always sharing stories from the ground and from the grassroots of people who are doing things differently already it's not mm-hmm. like this is um, an idealistic future that isn't a reality like people are already living this reality mm-hmm. um, and they're already uh, crafting ways of working and living that are nourishing for themselves and their communities and are nourishing for the planet at the same time um, mm-hmm. and I think that the more we can tune into those visions for the future that are happening now <laughs> and um, see ourselves in them and put ourselves in them and, and um, embrace them, that's really, yeah, for me, that's what you know I try to do with my life and where I think we can have the most impact. Um, sorry, that was kind of a wishy-washy answer to that question, I think, but it's a massive question, I guess, is the answer. And I think it's going to take a lot to transform. I think also that is what the serial series speaks to. You know, serial, if you listen, it's six episodes and it's all through the lens of bread. So it's a very, you know, it's a topic we can all somewhat identify with. Mm. Um, and it shows, it talks about human health. It talks about seed breeding. It talks about farming. Uh, it talks about milling, baking, and then also, you know, where are we going next? And all the way through that, you start to see how the system we've come to live in was built and why. And, and it by no means is illogical. So it's not meant to discredit that. Um, but it's just also showing how it's sort of come to a place where we're hitting these planetary boundaries and we're having mass extinctions. And maybe there's an alternative. Definitely. And I think a nice way to sort of encompass, uh, like, um, encompass everything that we talked about now is, is actually try and um, figure out what we can do as consumers. I think everyone's kind of fired up now. We know that there's a problem. We know that we need to change our habits. I, I wonder if you could leave our listeners with um, some sort of top tips as to how to buy how to act as consumers and potentially, you know, some brands or messages to look out for when we are navigating this really complicated food environment. Totally. Um, yeah, well, I think obviously the first thing you should do is listen to Farmerama Radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, in somewhat serious way there, because I think what, what it helps you to understand is... Um, some of the complexities, um, but also some of the simple ways uh, you can, or people are working with those complexities. Um, and it, there's a lot of storytelling in there. So, you know, it's not that, it's not difficult to understand. Um, 
but it tells you a lot quite quickly. Um, and then I think the other thing is certainly uh, in my life is the more you can move away from buying just from supermarkets um, and trying to buy more direct from farming networks, the better. Um, so in response to the COVID crisis, um, there was a, a website set up. I, I helped them get set up called Farms to Feed Us. Um, and that's just lit, it's a database of all different farms um, across the country uh, who are in some way moving in a sustainable direction. Um, they're not all organic or anything like that, um, but it's all farms that are recognizing kind of their place in this whole system. And so, you know, that's an amazing way to start to support this different vision is to just, even if you just say, okay, actually from now on, I'm going to buy um, my pulses from Hodmedons, for example, mm. just that one thing, you know, that's starting to engage differently and make a difference. Um, or also there's um, community supported agriculture schemes. They're called CSAs. Um, and often you can find out if you have one local to you and often their vegetables. Uh, so usually it's a vegetable based box scheme essentially. Um, and it's often a lot cheaper than the supermarket. Um, and it's most of the time, or it is organic produce, uh, if not certified. Um, and the great thing about that is you, you do end up having a relationship with the growers. And then you start to hear some of these kind of concerns and, and you're even able to go visit often. Um, and again, that's a nice way to just start to engage with, you know, what is all this? Um, and if you do eat meat, I think, it, it's it's about like for me what i've been doing is i do eat less meat but i then i probably don't spend less on meat in on average because then i just buy higher quality meat when i do buy it um mm -hmm. and in particular the pasture for life certification if you know the the pasture for life farmers are some of the best farmers i know in the UK today. And when you go to their farms, they're these amazingly diverse, beautiful places. Um, so that is a great, you know, it's great to support those farmers and you can feel or be confident that you're part of a regenerative system if you're doing that. Pasture for Life certification, do they supply butchers or supermarkets or is it, or is this something you have to buy direct? Um, so they definitely supply butchers. Um, and you can go on their website and you can see all the different places that supply them or they're on Instagram. Um, and um, I don't think they do supply supermarkets yet. I think there are different like online suppliers who um, like th there's something called the ethical butcher. Mm -hmm. um, and they supply meat from a number, uh, you know, a specific number or farms that are only regenerative um, mm -hmm. and many of them are pasture for life certified um, trying to think there's so there's others like that out there um, mm. who are doing things differently basically that's great I mean I, I've got a list of things that I've got to put on the website now <laughs> to uh, to direct people to sort of get involved in this uh, more literally um, this whole regenerative farming movement you definitely inspired me um, and I think, you know, what your work is and, and the, the podcast and everything else that you're doing around it is really putting the 
respect for growers at the forefront. And I think we need to really, like I said, start to paraphrase you, recognize that farmers are the caretakers of the earth. Um, it's kind of weird for me because I come from a farming background. Well, not me personally, but my my dad um, grew up on a on a farm in the middle of Punjab. It was a uh, a completely um, you know vegetarian farm, but we kept buffalo and goats and stuff, and we still do. And we, you know, it's a lot of subsistence farming, but there are some leftover to to um, produce for for markets. And yeah, it's quite interesting to kind of go full circle coming to the UK setting up here sending his son to medical school and then his son going back to farming <laughs> and doing a podcast on the subject is quite interesting hey definitely i feel yeah I, I i agree with you on like it's this weird full cycle feeling where uh you know most people's ancestors or many i shouldn't say most but many people's ancestors not that long ago were involved in farming in some format um, and we all you know, moved away from that for whatever reasons. I think part of it is that farming is very risky. Mm. Um, and now we're realizing that actually it may be risky, but all of life is risky. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, you can't shield yourself from risk is the truth. Um, and that actually there's so much more nourishment that mm. is available on farms that we just... You know, um, as the lady who uh, is founder of Farms to Feed Us, she said, Kathy's in Germans, she said, you know, farms feed us in many ways. Mm. And that, I think that's what we're all realizing, essentially, is like, oh, yeah, you can't just kind of hope that those plants come out and feed us. Um, we need, it's so much more than that to be part of the farming system. That's a, an amazing way to end it. I thought, oh, did you have one more point? Well, I just, I guess I wanted to say something further about the social justice point. Sure. Um, it was just that I think, you know, if people are interested in that, uh, where I've learned more about that, especially, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement um, mm. and in the UK, there's something called Land in Our Names. Um, I think a really good starting place for that. Well, we did... Um, is this lady called Leah Penniman, and she has written a book called Farming While Black. Mm. And I think it's um, it's just a really, she's a very, uh, well, she just shares about um, what she calls, liber you know, liberation on the land um, as, as a black person. You know, what has that meant for her? And it's got lots of practical tips on farming as well throughout and it also kind of shows the history of farming that actually a lot of what we think of as sustainable farming today has its roots in Africa um, and so actually these are not you know okay we can, we think that they're relatively new but these practices um, are rooted in the ancestry of black people um, and it's just a complete reframe on, on everything I thought. <laughs> so I think that's why it's a, a good book to start or if you're interested. And also I really like, she has a strong emphasis on um, singing and ceremony around the farm, which again, you know, maybe just two years ago, I'd been like, yeah, yeah, whatever, woo woo, um, <laughs> hippie, whatever. Um, but the way she puts it, it makes you feel like, God, 
I am missing a trick here. Um, <laughs> how have I not realized the kind of the world I'm living in? Um, so yeah, I think it's a really great book, and we also we do have a Farmerama interview with her as well. If you want to just start with the interview before you get the book, um, it's the episode's called Farming While Black, so you can listen to it there. I'll put a link on that for the show notes. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you so much, um, and yeah talk again soon definitely like i said there was a lot of information there about regenerative farming i've certainly learned a lot prior to this podcast and during this podcast and will continue to do so Uh, please share this with people who think uh, about this subject matter and who want to get involved and also give us a comment I will read every single one and if you want more shows discussing the nuances of this highly complicated topic then uh, we will definitely make more shows on it because I think when you're looking at this conversation around food as medicine it's very important to take steps back and actually think about the health of what you're putting into your body if your ultimate goal is to optimize longevity and optimize health span as well as lifespan and that has led me to the soil and I think it's certainly something that's going to become a lot more popular uh, and something we're going to be hearing about a lot in the post-pandemic world too. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please do give us a five-star review and share it with your colleagues and I will see you here next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.